Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that from a familiar part of your word, we would receive a fresh sense of your worth and your glory and a fresh sense of how you would have us respond to you. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would empower this event and that you yourself, O Lord, by your Spirit would deliver your word deep into the hearts of everyone who listens. And Father, would you accomplish great things in our lives through this. And I ask this, Jesus, in your name and for the sake of your glory. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm sure that all of us are somewhat familiar with the broad strokes of the story of Noah. The ark, the animals, the flood. These are memorable images, and they've become a part of our cultural imagination even to this day. But that being said, I'm not sure that we're all quite as familiar with Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the chapters in the Bible that actually unpack this story, as we could be. A a pretty uh, strong example of this, a few years ago I was was looking at a, a really nicely illustrated children's book that told the story of Noah and the Ark. I think I might have been in a Christian bookstore. And uh, it, it actually did a good job of getting most of the, the, the details of the story right. Again, you got the beats of the story. You have Noah, you have the animals, you have the ark, you have the water. And then on the final page, it came in for a landing with the moral of the story. And it said something like this. Noah took care of the animals in his day. And there are animals that need to be taken care of in our day. Here's a list of, of all these endangered species. And will you be like Noah and take care of these animals in our day? Now, I don't think we shouldn't care about endangered species, but I'm pretty sure that's not the point of the story of, of Noah and the flood. And it's a good reminder for us today as we turn to Genesis 7, the, which is the part of the story that actually records the flood itself that we want to pay careful attention to how this is written. We don't want to assume that we know everything. We want to pay careful attention to how this part of the story is written and what the author of Genesis wants us to notice and what there is for us, therefore, to take away from this. Now, let's remember that Verse 22 of chapter 6 left us off with these words. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah built the ark, like we saw last week, by faith in the promises of God. Faith in the promises that God had given him. Now, we don't know how long it took him to do it. Probably not days. Probably years perhaps decades, more likely. A big part of Noah's life would have been given to building this ark. Do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder if he doubted? Do you ever wonder if if Noah ever lay awake at night wondering if he was doing the right thing? 
did I, did I really hear God when he told me this? I, maybe. But that's not actually what we're told here. What we're told here is what Noah actually did, which is that he built the ark. He did all that God commanded him. That's what we're told. And then, then, after a long period of obedience, God speaks to Noah again. And chapter 7 opens with the instructions that God gives to Noah, the ark having been completed. Now, in your study guide this week, we actually look at a number of cases in the Bible where, where, where people that, that we assume maybe heard from God every day actually went years in between hearing from God. We're going to think, about what, what are some of the implications of, of that for the life of faith? But after this long obedience, chapter 7, 1 to 5, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, right? So it's been built by now, because otherwise he couldn't go into it. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his uh, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So these are, these are Noah's final instructions, okay? Verse 1 to 5, final instructions. And there's four things in these final instructions that, that we want to we pay attention to. One is ongoing righteousness. Look at the command to enter the ark. It's combined with this repeated statement about Noah's righteousness. Go into the ark for... I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah continued to be righteous during all those years of building the ark. So just, this is important to think about, that Noah didn't, God came to Noah at the beginning, and because he was righteous, gave him instructions to build the ark. What would have happened if Noah had said, hey, I'm righteous, I'm going to build the ark, I'm going to be saved, uh, I don't have to worry so hard about being righteous from now on, maybe I can uh, have some fun for the next few years, because uh, I'm, I'm safe already, I'm good, okay? Well, uh, praise God that Noah didn't respond that way, and, and, and it's difficult to ask what ifs, but you get the sense here that it was Noah's present continuing righteousness that, that really mattered at this point. It was a life of righteousness. Who he w- had been didn't matter so much as who he was. And, and that's what God draws attention to. Not who he had been, but who he was. The second thing here is, is we see this uh, distinction between clean and unclean animals in verse 2. Now, Hebrew literature and the stories in the Old Testament very often do this. They very often save important details for kind of like later on in the story, and then they just sort of surprise us with these details. And it's one of the ways that they're written on purpose to be engaging. Uh, Earlier, we had only heard about Noah bringing just a pair of of every animal. And now we're told actually seven pairs of all the clean animals. Now, the difference between clean and unclean animals doesn't get explored till the book of Leviticus. So we don't get a a breakdown of, of what clean and unclean animals were. But apparently at this stage, there was a basic understanding that there were some animals that were in different categories. And... And we might ask, well, why did Noah need extra clean animals? 
Why seven of the clean animals? And the best answer from the text of Genesis itself is that he was going to need them for sacrifices. Next week, Josh is preaching, by the way, next week, and, and he's, going to, uh, he's going to cover verse 20 in chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah needed extra of the clean animals because he was going to need to offer sacrifices Now, this is a big clue. The fact that he's going to need to bring extra clean animals is a big clue that he's going to need to offer sacrifices, which is a big clue of what? It's a big clue that he's going to need to offer sacrifices, which is a big clue of what? The fact that sin is going to be a present reality after the flood. This is a big clue that the flood is not going to deal with sin once and for all. And that's going to actually be a pretty big theme in chapter 9 and also chapter 8. There's a third uh, feature here in in these final instructions. That's 40 days and nights. We're told that the the time period that the water is going to fall on the earth is 40 days and nights. 40 days is a very significant time period in the Bible. Moses is on Mount Sinai 40 days. Israel spied out the land for 40 days. Elijah, who spearheaded the age of the prophets, he took 40 days and nights to go back to Mount Sinai. Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. After his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples over period of 40 days. And so in the Bible, this time period of 40 days is often associated with with a new era, a new epoch, the the dawning of, of, of a brand new age. And so that's helping us see here that what's going on in the flood here is not just this little small localized cleanup, but rather something completely new. Finally, number four in verse five, Noah's ongoing obedience gets highlighted again. Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah obeyed all the way the first time. That's biblical obedience. Noah didn't need to be bribed or begged. God told him to do something, and he just did it. That's how we need to obey God. That's how children need to obey their parents. That's what obedience is. Anything less isn't actually obedience. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Next, we're going to move into the second major portion in our text. The judgment begins. Verses 6 to 16. Here we see the actual beginning of the judgment of the flood. And there are two main elements within this section that we want to pay attention to that are going to help us draw out what's actually going on here. The first is repetition. What we want to notice here is how verses 6 to 10 are largely repeated in verses 11 to 16. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon, when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. 
And the windows of the heavens are open. Verse 7. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. Verse 8 and 9. Talk about the animals going into the ark with Noah. And verses 14 to 16. Talk about the same thing in, in perhaps even more detail and, and information and language that echoes the creation accounts. Talks about the animals after their kind going in. Verse 9 reminds us that this was done as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16, those who entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. Okay. What we need to understand is that this repetition is very, very deliberate. This is one of those things, right? Where we want to pay attention to how the author of Genesis wrote this chapter and this repetition is very important. If we just think about what's going on in the story here, the last remnant of an old world is fleeing for their lives into a boat that is going to shield them from God's wrath while an entire planet is destroyed beneath them. I mean, this is big, weighty stuff. If this were a movie, this scene of Noah and his family and the animals entering the ark would probably be filmed in slow motion with a big orchestral soundtrack and, and, and perhaps the camera being put in certain places to help us really savor the weight and the seriousness of this moment. And the way that the author of Genesis accomplishes that, helping us feel the weight, the momentousness of this, is by writing it like he has with all of this repetition and detail. Okay, this repetition is the literary equivalent of a slow motion camera shot. He's inviting us to just savor every little detail here so that we don't miss any part of it. This is big stuff. We should feel this. Here goes Noah and his family and these animals. And what's going to happen? We don't want to also want to miss one little important note that's not repeated at the end of verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. And we don't know if the door was too big or if it got stuck or some of those things we make up. We don't know that. But note this, this note of grace. God shut him in. God is taking care of them to keep them safe. And that's just a little hint of the preserving power of God that we're going to see come out more next week. Now, the second big element in these verses, verses 6 to 16, with all of their repetition, it's hard to miss that this is written as history. And that's the second big element here we want to notice in these verses. The author of Genesis seems to think that this flood was a real historical event. Okay? Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And if that's not enough, verse 11 gives us the exact day. The 600th year of Noah's life, second month on the 17th day of the month. Okay? That does not sound like a fairy tale to me. Okay? That's, that, this is not uh, it, a long time ago in a land far away, there was a man named Noah. No, like this is written as history. And that's how we should read it. The perspective of the author of Genesis and of every other biblical writer who refers back to this is that this actually happened. And it was actually a real 
worldwide flood. Think about that statement about the animals going into the ark according to their kinds. This is Genesis language. It's been very interesting for me over the past couple weeks to study this passage and to read various Bible scholars who basically say, you know, there's no evidence from geology that a worldwide flood ever happened. And, and you know, where would all that water have come from? Uh, and so this was probably just a local flood. Okay, it's actually surprising how many people take that perspective. Well, if it was a local flood, uh, why, why didn't Noah and his family just, just move, just relocate? I mean, that would have been a lot easier than building a big boat and loading all the animals onto it. Uh, and if it was a local flood, uh, why is verse 19 here? And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So I'm not going to get into a big discussion this morning on science and geology, except to say this. Uh, the reason that people have a hard time with this is because... Um, most of modern geology assumes that the world today was shaped by long and slow processes that happened over millions of years. So the, the features we see of the rocks and the Grand Canyon and all of that, shaped by little bits of water over a really long period of time. And, and so they say, as they look at all of this, there's no, there's no, in that sort of time scale, there's no evidence for a global flood within the past 6,000 or 7,000 or 10,000 years. Here's here's the thing, though. Since Mount St. Helens erupted 42 years ago, we've been learning that many of the things that we thought would take a very long time can actually happen in a really, really short period of time. After Mount St. Helens erupted, canyons were carved, entire forests were fossilized, other processes took place in months, weeks, days, sometimes hours which were assumed beforehand to have taken millions and millions of years. And over the past number of decades, creation scientists and flood geologists have done a lot of good work to show that that our world may not be near as old as we think, as we're commonly told, because a massive catastrophe like the flood, with all of its after effects, can very plausibly explain many of the features that, that we see in our planet today. Just think about verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Okay, this was not just rain from the sky. Apparently, before Noah's flood, there were massive reservoirs of underwater, uh, of underground water that burst forth, a, a word that suggests ripping, tearing. I mean, this is a massive catastrophe, a planet-shaking catastrophe. And if you throw in the possibility of some volcanic activity, this has the possibility of completely reshaping the planet, much like Mount St. Helens completely reshaped some of its surrounding area. Now, if you want to pursue some of this further, I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot more. There's a documentary that came out a few years ago called Is Genesis History? And it walks through a number of really good evidences for for a young earth that has been shaped by Noah's flood. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It's not perfect, and I could quibble with a few things here and there, but it's a really important perspective that we need to listen to. It's, it's a, and this, is, this particular documentary is a really good portrayal of, of this really important perspective. In the end, Genesis 7 doesn't tell us exactly when the flood happened. 
It doesn't tell us exactly what its effects on the planet were. And it's okay for us to admit that we don't have all the answers. It's, it's okay for us to admit that there's some things that we're still working out and figuring out. Creation scientists, flood geologists still have a fair bit of work ahead of them as they study the planet and study the Bible. And we shouldn't act like we've got it all figured out. But what is clear, according to Genesis 7, is that a flood really happened on a real day. It was truly a global event. And everything died except for those kept alive on the ark. And we shouldn't be surprised as science backs up those things more and more. Let's move into our third big section in our passage today, the judgment complete, verses 17 to 24. These verses show us that the judgment of the flood reaching its its high point, reaching its completion. And once again, the author Genesis uses repetition, Repetition to help us really see this process unfolding. And, and we, what we get here is almost the idea of a, of a, of a, a time lapse of, of, of the waters getting higher and higher and higher. I just can't help but think about this in terms of, of movies and camera shots and stuff. And then we see this, this, this almost a time lapse here. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. Okay, but that's, that's not enough. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. It's kind of clear what's going on here, hey? There's a lot of water. And the author of Genesis wants us to see that. This is a big, huge deal. And by the time we get to the end of verse 20, the picture is quite clear. The waters have triumphed over everything, even the highest mountains. Now let's talk about science again for a moment here, because this is one of the points where people go, ah, this is ridiculous. Uh, There's not enough water on planet Earth to cover Mount Everest, So this is just silly. Well, my response is, uh, that's just silly. Because uh, everyone agrees that the mountains weren't always mountains. Okay, do you know that there are fossils of fish and sea lilies in the Himalayas? Okay, so you go to climb Mount Everest and you can find fossils of things that used to be at the bottom of the ocean. Even the, 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 like every geologist understands that what what are currently mountain ranges today were not always mountain ranges that many of them were actually seabeds because there's fish fossils there. And, and, and the, the, the difference here is, is, that, um, is that traditional geology says that the mountain ranges like the Rockies and the Swiss Alps and the Himalayas were formed over an incredibly long period of time as the plates of the earth smashed into each other and created these big rock pileups that we call mountains. Um, Once again, there's a number of young earth scientists who argue that these mountain ranges were actually formed pretty rapidly by the flood and and its after effects. It makes a lot of sense to me. At, At the time of the flood, the highest mountains weren't actually all that high. And so the water could very easily cover them. And 
and the the va- deepest valleys perhaps weren't all that deep. The, the the earth maybe wasn't quite as extreme. And if it were all flat, there's more than enough water to cover everything. And so a big part of the process of the waters receding from the earth, which is what we're going to look at next week, was the formation of higher and lower ground. So that's a part of what God was doing, probably using natural processes to do it, after the flood was causing high points and low points so that the water runs into the low points off the high points and you get dry land again. And that seems to be exactly what Psalm 104, 6 to 9 describes. Listen to this. Psalm 104, 6 to 9 is talking about the flood. It's talking about the earth here. It says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Okay, so there's talking about the global flood. At your rebuke, they, that's the waters, fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Now listen to this. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed to them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they might not again cover the earth. Seems to be exactly what we would expect, right? Coming out of Genesis 7 here. There was no Mount Everest at the time of the flood, or if there was, it was not nearly as high. And, and then God reshapes the earth in, in, the, in the aftermath. Now, here's why this is important. Why it's important for us to affirm that this was truly a global event, not just a little local flood, because of what verses 21 to 23 tell us. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing. Do you remember God saying, I will blot out all flesh? Here it is. That was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. I mean, it's not hard to get the point here. God's judgment is complete. God accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He did what he was going to do, what he said he was going to do, and everything's dead. And you see where we are now? We're back in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's where the six days of creation began. The earth being a chaotic, formless ball of water. And what God has done in the flood is undone much of what he did in creation. The animals are gone. The people are gone. The division between dry and, and dry land and, 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 and water has been undone. The earth is once again a formless and void orb of chaotic, shapeless water. Except for the ark. Verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So we get this picture here of a lonely boat drifting on top of an endless ocean that covers the entire planet. There is no shore. There is no dock. Just a lonely boat on an endless ocean. And that's where Genesis 7 leaves us. Almost, almost. Because the chapter ends with a little note of hope. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Which means something happens after those 150 days. And that's 
what Josh gets to pick up with next week. But today leaves us off with this picture of creation undone and judgment complete. So what are you and I supposed to do with this rather bleak, dreary picture this morning? And to help us answer that question, we're going to go to two passages in the New Testament that help us apply the message of Genesis 7 to us. Okay? This is, if, you're, if you're not sure about what to do with a part of the Old Testament, a good place to start is what does the New Testament do with it? And that's what we're going to do here. We're going to go to two New Testament passages that unpack and apply the message of Genesis 7 to us today. And the first is found in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 44. So if you've got your Bible, which I hope you do, I encourage you to turn there. Matthew 24, 36 to 44. Now, Jesus' disciples at the beginning of this chapter asked him two questions. They asked him about the destruction of the temple, and they asked him about the signs of his return at the end of the age. And my understanding is that in the, in the first part of Matthew 24, Jesus has largely been speaking about that first question, the destruction of the temple and his coming to his father to receive a kingdom, which we talked about. Remember from Daniel 7, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But when you get to th- verse 36, well, just, just so you know, by the way, the, the re- part, one of the reasons I think that everything up until verse 35 is about the destruction of the temple, about Jesus' receiving a kingdom from his father, is he says in verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, I, I and, and we'll get there in a few years when we get to Matthew 24, but I think up till verse 35, it's largely things that happened in the first century. And when it talks about his coming on the clouds, that's the Daniel 7 coming to his father to receive a kingdom. But when we get to verse 36, now Jesus goes to respond to their second question. Because they said, okay, destruction of the temple and your coming. Now he responds to that second question. But concerning that day and hour, in other words, when he returns to earth, that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now again, coming here, we're now using that different, even a completely different word in the original language. This is now the word that's talking about his return to earth, not the Daniel 7 coming to the Father. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. By the way, it seems like Jesus thinks Noah's flood really happened and that it was a global event, so... uh, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Jesus' team, so I'm going to stick with his interpretation of Scripture. Then, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. 
Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. That's why he can't give them a sign of what, what, what to look for. That's why he says no one knows. This is, a part of, of, this is a part of his knowledge that Jesus has willingly offered to his Father and not kept for himself. Only the Father knows. So what's it going to be like before Jesus returns to earth? Well, it's going to be like the flood of Noah. What were people doing before the flood came onto the earth? They were just going about normal life, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, acting like everything was normal. Because everything was normal, other than the big boat that some lunatic was building. Other than that, everything was normal. There were no signs, no warning signs, nothing that would have tipped people off that something was changing here. Totally clueless until the flood came and swept them all away. And so it will be with the coming of Jesus. People are going to be going about their ordinary lives when everything changes. Verse 40, two men will be in the field, just working in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Typically, in the last 150 years, Christians have interpreted these verses to be talking about the rapture event. Uh, It's interesting, though, the word taken is most often associated with judgment in in these contexts. And so it almost seems to be suggesting that these people are taken, swept away in judgment, just like Noah's flood. And I'm not going to get into that today. I think both of these are possibilities. But here's the idea. People are going to be going about their normal, normal lives, working in the field, making flour, when the world-changing event of the second coming of Christ happens when no one's expecting it. So Jesus' point, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So you see those guys on TV who say, oh, we've narrowed it down when Jesus is coming. You're like, how do I know whether they're right or not? Let me just make it very easy for you. If they say they know when Jesus is coming, they are wrong. Because Jesus doesn't know when he's coming. No one knows except every day it's a day sooner. That's the only thing we know for sure. If anyone says anything to you other than it's a day sooner than yesterday, be very careful. The one thing for sure is that we don't know, and it's going to catch us by surprise. So stay awake, stay alert, watch. Here's, here's, here's a way that we can sum this up. We are all Noah. We've all been warned about what's coming next. We know it's coming, but we don't know when it will happen. And so we live our lives in a state of readiness, building all of our goals and plans and priorities around the return of our Savior. We live in a way where we would not be embarrassed if Jesus were to show up today. Because we know that he could. let's, Let's put it this way. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? Go do it. Now, now, when we read the rest of the New Testament, and, and that's, this is in your study guide, you realize that if Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, it doesn't mean sit on your roof and do nothing. Like, it means get to work serving the Lord. 
be be busy in the work of the Lord so that when he shows up, he's, you're, the, you're the servant who's just doing what he said to do, right? That comes out in Matthew 20, 25. And again, it's in your study guide. This is not about, you know, unplugging and sitting on a roof and, and waiting. This is about being active as we serve the Lord. But do it. Don't wait. You don't know when he's coming. Be ready. That is one of the big lessons from Genesis 7 as we live ready for this next big event. There's a second truth that we want to look at, and this is from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. So again, I encourage you to turn there as we, we wrap up this morning from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins. I should give you a moment to turn there. I still hear rustling. That's a good sound. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, so in the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I don't know why the Apostle Paul gets a bad rap for being hard to understand because Peter's pretty, pretty dense. Now, next fall, we're planning to preach through 1 Peter. I'm so looking forward to the challenge of untangling a passage like this and just helping us get inside of it. We're not going to do that this morning. But here's what I want us to, to, to notice here. Look at verse 20. It talks about eight people being brought safely through the waters of judgment. Okay, that part we can understand. Eight people brought safely through the waters of judgment. The ark protected them. So even, there were, even though there were waters beating down on them and on both sides and, and underneath of them, they were brought safely through that water. Baptism corresponds to this. When we are baptized, we too are passing through the waters. And those waters don't kill us. They don't drown us. We come up again safe and alive. Why? Because verse 18, Christ died, and verse 21, Christ rose again. Now, Peter's very clear here that it's not the physical act of baptism that saves us, because he says in verse 21, it's not about the removal of dirt from the body, okay? Rather, it's the spiritual significance of crying out to God for salvation through the resurrection of Jesus. And in baptism, we are reenacting the way that we have passed through the waters of judgment, the waters of God's judgment, and come through safely on the other side because of Christ. So I hope it's not a stretch to, to kind of just sum it up this way. Jesus is our ark. Those eight people were saved from the waters of God's judgment by that ark. And you and I are saved 
from the flood of God's judgment today by Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are carried through to the new life on the other side. Outside of Christ, there's only judgment. And that judgment is real. That judgment is coming to our earth in a global way. Every day, our earth gets more and more brash in begging God to judge us, and he will. Judgment is coming to each one of us individually when we die and we stand before him. You cannot survive the flood of God's judgment on your own any more than Noah could have survived the flood outside of the ark. Your only hope is to run to Christ and to find safety in him. Find safety in Christ who was battered and tossed on the waves of God's wrath as he hung on the cross dying for you. Find safety in Christ who was laid low beneath the flood of judgment for three days like Noah. But up he came on the third day and today he is a safe place for all to find refuge in him. Now maybe, maybe you don't know this this morning. Maybe you don't know that God's judgment is coming for you and your only safety is to run to Jesus. Your only safety is to trust that he bore God's wrath instead of you on the cross. If you need to hear that this morning for the first time and to run to Jesus, would you do that? Now maybe this morning you know this already and you need to hear it again. Maybe you need to hear again that Jesus is your safe place from the judgment of God. Maybe life is really hard for you today. Maybe your body's falling apart. Maybe your family feels like it's falling apart. Maybe it feels like everything is against you. Perhaps your Heavenly Father is disciplining you. But we can know this morning because of the cross that He is not destroying you. God is not destroying you this morning. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God is not against you because Jesus bore the oceans of judgment as your substitute on the cross. You can know that whatever difficulty you're going through today, it is not destructive. It is constructive. God is using it to do something positive and beautiful in your life. He's using it to shape you, to be more like his son, to make you more ready for Jesus' return. Is that good news? Is this, is this a way in which the gospel can come home to land a little bit for you? To, to know that whatever this week holds for you, whatever its difficulty, God is not against you. If you are in Christ, if you have cried out to Jesus through faith and have been saved by him, God is not against you this week. Whatever difficulty comes your way, that is an example of him being for you, shaping you to be like his son. That's good news. So I call you this morning to run to the ark, to run to Jesus, to find safety in him. You're not safe anywhere else. Run to Jesus. Father, would you help us 
to savor this morning the good news that because Jesus was destroyed, so to speak, on the cross, that we will never be. And that whatever difficulty comes our way is not a sign of you being against us, but rather is proof positive that you are for us and you're disciplining us like a loving father with his children. Would you help us, Lord, to, to, to really delight in that today? Would you help, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not come to you for salvation? Could this be the day that they give up any hope of being good enough on their own and run to the ark? Jesus, we praise you for bearing the flood of judgment in our place. And we praise you that in you we are safe for eternity. Would you help these truths to sink down deep into our souls today, O oh Lord? Amen. I'm going to give you a moment to be quiet, to talk to the Lord about these things, and then the team's going to come and lead us in a song.